human beings are pretty brutal. I say that to myself. Like I think, you know, when I'm forgiving of myself, mm-hmm. I say that's that's who I am. That's not a great thing to say up to yourself, but I think that's that's how one forgives oneself. How would that broader perspective on who we are and what we hold and what we contain and what other people contain, how would that allow me to make tshuva from my own hatred or from my own jealousy or my own mockery? You know, in the in the in the piyutim on Yom Kippur, we say, "You just made us like this." I don't really believe in tzaddikim anyway. Like you know, I I always assumed when I when I, when I, remember when I first started doing Jewish stuff and visiting people who were from and. You know, visiting people's houses and you see, you'd see these kind of shiny homes where people were like, you know, on their best behavior and everyone was like, you know, all the kids were great and the parents were great and everyone was lovely and no one was arguing. And, right. you, and I thought, wow, this is really, really bullshit. Right. Look, the current Pope is a really great guy, but there's a there's a wonderful video of him hitting someone. There's really? Yeah, there's a great video. He was he was with some woman. He was standing in a crowd and she and she kind of grabbed him by the sleeve and he just turned around and whacked her. <laughs> I, I don't think there are even 36, you know, like I, 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 I don't even, I don't know what that means. It's such a weird notion of, of what it means to be a human. Like, you know, if I don't think God's perfect like that, the human condition doesn't lend itself to righteousness in that sense. It lends itself to a messy, dirty form of righteousness where we're struggling and struggling. And the cruelty is when you don't see the struggle. That was my Chavruta and nemesis, Rabbi Joel Levy. I'm Leon Wiener Dow, creator and host of Padrash. Joel was responding to these words of the prophet Isaiah. The former of light and creator of darkness, the maker of peace and the creator of evil, I am God who does all of these things. You didn't need to come to Padrash to learn that we're complicated creatures who combine exceptional kindness with acts of indifference and even cruelty. But it's worth noting that, at least as Isaiah tells the story, the divine created us, and indeed all of the world, is composite mixtures. Not infrequently, when some of our ugliness surfaces, we lack the capability, or perhaps the will, to right things immediately. The question we want to explore in this episode is, how can we keep at it, refusing to let the opportunity to right things pass? unwilling to simply accept the facticity of what we did without somehow altering its aftershock or its legacy. It's what I call slow brew tshuva, and we'll be immersing ourselves deep in its juices of fermentation. Welcome to episode four, Buzzing in My Head. We have a lot of Torah to learn. Y'all stay with us. Our text for the day is once again from This American Life, this time from an episode called The Long Fuse. In it, reporter Jared Marcel tells the story of Ian Dilley and Mike Friedman, who were in a competitive cycling race at age 17. Ian was ahead of the pack, but Mike caught up and they began vying for second place. You see, in biking, you don't want to be in first place, not until the very end, as otherwise you end up breaking the wind for whomever is behind you, making their life much easier. So Ian and Mike did what cyclists do often. They struck a deal. And we were kind of just like coasting and he would look back and the group would be like getting closer to catching us. 
And, um, and he said, uh, you can win. You can win. Three words. I knew instantly, like, what it meant. He means if I stop attacking him and, and let him stay with me, um, and let him sit in my draft, then when we get to the finish line, he won't sprint me. He'll let me win the bike race. You can guess what happened next, as this is no Hollywood movie. It's a Padrash episode where we seek the muck. Mike went back on his word, sprinting to the finish and taking the race. Ian's first reaction is rage. And then over time, once he's transitioned from competitive cycling to covering cycling as a journalist, it morphs into something else. Call it indignance, call it annoyance, call it what you want. But something refuses to go away, especially because Mike has gone on to become an Olympic cyclist adored by everyone. No one can believe that Mike would ever cheat. So Ian's left to stew in his own juices. And part of what drove Ian crazy was that it kept driving him crazy. I realize like saying that sounds like a high school football player, like talking about competing in the state title <laughs> game or whatever else. And then I totally get like how kind of like ridiculous and small that sounds as, a, as an adult, but it's, it's weird. It's just weird how like how you cling to those things. Ian wasn't the only one who had something on the low burner. Fifteen years later, Mike was stuck with it too. Man, we made this left-hand turn and the finish line is right, you know, within sight, you know, 250 meters. And before I knew it, man, I was sprinting. Even going up to the line, I knew what I was doing. I was, it was wrong, but I, could, I couldn't stop. you know why you did what you did or have a better understanding of why you did it? Well, I think there, I, I was 17 years old at the time. So... You know, I, I, I just, yeah, I don't know. It's just, it's just kind of one of those things that I don't have an answer. You know, I, I try my best, but I don't always do my best kind of thing. It wasn't pre-planned. It wasn't done in a way to be nefarious. It wasn't, I'm going to tell this guy I'm going to do this in this sprint. It wasn't done in that way. It wasn't done that way at all. That's it. You know, <laughs> I mean, that's it. At one point, their paths crossed, and Mike broached the subject but fell well short of an apology, which is why Ian was shocked when a couple of years later, Mike, having hit rock bottom and living out of a trailer, called Ian to ask if he could come and apologize, to make amends, in person. He showed up on Ian's doorstep not only with a sincere and complete apology, but also with the victory jersey that he had buried deep in his drawers since that race. And he even tried to call the cycling commission and get the record books set straight. Here's Ian. He came up and he was holding the jersey and um, he gave it to me right away. He looked me in the eyes and he said, sorry. And I said, thank you. Like he had talked about, like he had, I think he had even called like the governing body and asked them if there's any way that the actual results could be changed. And like, um, yeah, he, he was just like every effort to make it right. I was just like, wow, like when does that ever happen in someone's life? I mean, I don't even know when I've ever done that, you know, like just like made something that I did wrong right. 
I'd like to welcome to Padrash Rabbi Professor David Ellenson, Rabbi Vimori, my rabbi and my teacher. For anyone who doesn't know, David is an emblematic uh, and rare example of what it is to combine being a rabbi and being a scholar. David did his rabbinic degree at Hebrew Union College, did his doctorate at Columbia, and more than he is a prodigious scholar, which he is, he is a prodigious mensch uh, and a teacher. David was uh, president of Hebrew Union College, was professor at Brandeis University and chair of the Schussman Center for Israel Studies. And it is a pleasure, a schut, a real privilege and honor to uh, have you here on Padrash. Thank you for being here. I want to start just by asking you, David, what was your, what was your impression? What were your initial thoughts when you, when you heard the story? Well, I found it a very, very powerful story. And it was particularly powerful because the story, in a sense, took place over several decades. I mean, I thought about your term, Leon, of, uh, in quotes, slow-brewed tshuva. Mm-hmm. Uh, what was interesting was, of course, three words stated uh, two 17-year-old boys when they're engaged in a race, and then the remorse and guilt that, in this case, Mike Friedman, the one who went back on his word, mm-hmm. how that influenced him over the course of the years and decades that followed. And then, of course, in the heat of the moment with adrenaline flowing, Mike just took over and won the race. Uh, I mean, he genuinely violated the agreement that he had made. Um, Part of me thought, tried to think back to myself (laughs) as Mm. a 17-year-old boy, of course, is 55 years ago, so it's difficult for me to remember, but I can imagine that what Mike did is completely, completely understandable Mm. in the context of the adrenaline and hormones that flow through a 17-year-old. Simultaneously, what he did was wrong, and I don't blame Ian for being furious with him, but what interested me the most was Mike's realization over the years about how wrong he had been in that situation. Mm. And I was even amazed that at the very end when the culminating act of tshuva occurs and he comes to ask Ian for an apology decades Mm -hmm. later, Mm -hmm. uh, the lengths to which he had gone to attempt to rectify this error in moral judgment. And it was an error in moral judgment. It was a remarkable act of, to use Maimonides' terms, chuvagmura. I mean, it was a total... But the other thing I thought, and here I'll stop, is that, I mean, there really were two characters in this. One is Mike and his act of chuva, but then the role that Ian had to play in all of this when... uh, he had to decide whether he would accept the tshuva or not. Obviously, you know, if you're, if you're trained as a, as a cyclist or, or, or you're a horse or whatever, you see the finish line and you just probably without thinking just go into high gear. 
and you know, your superego has to kick in and say, wait, 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 you know, that's not what I agreed to do, you know, and, and, and that didn't happen. But then he has a tremendous, tremendous and powerful and moving sense of remorse that doesn't, that doesn't go away. And then on Ian's end, which there's a kind of parallel, as you said, there, there are two players here and there, and there is a parallel. And Ian, there, there's one point when, when he tells Jared Marcel, the reporter, when he's sharing the fact that he's still carrying or was carrying yeah, you know, the rage had turned to a sense of being wronged and 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 hurt, as you said. And he's carrying it with him decades down the road. And he even kind of apologizes and says, you know, I know I sound like a kind of, you know, high school football player who can't leave his past behind, you know, but so so there's a kind of both of them are going through this similar process where something that happened decades ago is still festering. It's still kind of there. You know, if I can just add one personal comment, Mm -hmm. um, this will sound odd given that I'm 72 years of age and I think of everything that has happened in my life. Uh, I was cut from my varsity basketball team at Newport News High School when I was a junior. I had worked All summer, I had initially played on the football team, but I quit football, which I was probably a better athlete, Mm -hmm. in order to be on the basketball team. This basketball team ended up winning Mm -hmm. the Virginia State Championship. Wow, Uh, wow. All I wanted to do was play on this basketball team. And it Mm -hmm. turned out in the end, I was the uh, 16th man on a Mm 15-man basketball Mm -hmm. team. Mm -hmm. And I was cut, and to this day, I felt that someone made the team when it should really have been me. But Mm. the key point I'm making as you talk about Jared interviewing Ian is that this is now 57 years ago that this event occurred to me. Right. And out of an entire lifetime where I have had many highs and lows, I am (laughs) not quite sure why, and I don't know if I should confess it, it is the single most significantly disappointing event in my entire life. I'm I'm somewhat embarrassed to admit. No, don't be. But but you're you're saying you're voicing exactly what Ian voiced, right? In other words, that sense of like, I'm embarrassed to feel this, but that's not the, you know, there's there's a resonance of the inner experience, which which is powerful and which continues to be present for us. Let's try to transition and, and, and reframe, if we can, the story of Ian and Mike in terms that, that, you know, speak Jewish concepts. Tell me about the texts that came to mind and tell me about the way in which you kind of translated what comes up into terms that were meaningful for you in terms of your, you know, Jewish understanding. Well, the first text that came to mind immediately, and I thought of uh, Mike here more than Ian, is a text from Yeshayahu, Isaiah Memche, 45.7. Uh, Mm -hmm. Uh, which is a phrase that, of course, is part of our Jewish liturgy. But, of course, our liturgy changes uh, the phrase when we talk about God as, uh, you know, the creator of light. But here it says in 45.7 that God is Oseh Shalom Uvarea Tarad, that God uh, creates peace but also makes peace but is also the creator of evil. And I thought about lines from the Zohar and other passages that talk about the whole notion of the Yetzer Hara, the, uh, I don't know, I'll either call it the it or the evil inclination that is mm-hmm. part of who we are. Mm-hmm. We all know that without the Yetzer Hara, 
in quotes, no one would build a home, no one would have a family, uh, our sexual urges are tied mm -hmm. in the tradition to the Yetzer Hara. But at the very same time, I thought about the notion that, yes, God is the creator of peace, but what does it mean that God is not only the maker of peace, but in quotes, the creator of evil? In other words, what is it about who we are as human beings? Here I think of the Parsha in relationship to Noah, Yetzer Lev Hadam Ramin Urav, that a person's inclination from youth, not quite the same as original sin, but nevertheless is... From a very in, early age, yeah. You know, that, that the very inclination of our heart. And it made me understand the id, I'll call mm. it in Freudian terms, that overcame the superego. You used mm. that term earlier. Right. Right. And that caused him to just head for that finish line. It made me think about how evil and good are just mm. intermixed in who we are as human beings. I mean, another text that I didn't cite, and I'll get to the other ones I did, but as we're talking right now, there's a tshuva written by Svi uh, Hirsch Kalisher, one of the Mavas Zion, one of the forerunners of Zion. And mm -hmm. so I may have even taught this tshuva to you in one class apartment <laughs> ago, but he has a line that I've always loved that says, Lifamim, sometimes even people who sin mm -hmm. are still capable of performing mitzvot, and I'll translate this here as not commandments, but good deeds. They're able mm -hmm. to do the right thing, even as they at other times do the wrong thing, so that what but I but, but pl plentifully, right? In other words, kerimon, like, like they're just kind of overwhelming with, you know, in a, in a way that you break open a pomegranate and you're kind of in awe the at the beauty of the, yeah, of the multiplicity of the seeds. Let me even try to um, tighten the connection to, to Mike in that moment and, 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 and see, try something out on you and see whether you'll agree, which is that it could be that that competitive impulse, in other words, what you call the id, right, which takes over at that very end, that same impulse, right? If if you quoted the 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 section in the in the Talmud which mentions that if not for the yetzerah for the evil inclination, then then the world wouldn't exist. So you know, if we're if we're talking about what causes his fall at that moment, it's that competitive instinct, uh, and that if I, if I were to frame it positively, I would say it's a total uncompromising striving for excellence, right? In other words, which which only someone, an athlete at the highest echelons and the highest levels of excellence, uh, can can get. Yeah, I mean, the other text, by the way, that comes to mind is a much more modern one. Mm -hmm. I think always, as I know you must, uh, Rabbi Soloveitchik's The Lonely Man of Faith and Adam Rishon and Adam Sheni, mm -hmm. that here the first Adam of the first Genesis story is told to go out, uh, fill the earth, and to mm -hmm. conquer it. Mm -hmm. And Rabbi Soloveitchik makes the point that part of what the story demonstrates is that Adam Rishon, the first Adam, Adam one, is one who goes out and attempts to conquer the world. That's that it or the Yetzer that we have. Right, Whereas right. Adam Sheni in the second chapter of Genesis is a much more passive being who accepts the world as it is. That Adam becomes the person of faith. But the key point is that these two Adams coexist 
They're the yin and yang that mm. mark each of us as human beings. And certainly the story in relationship to Mike before we move right. on in this just re-emphasizes that. But I suspect that most of us feel it, even if not in a more dramatic way. I mean, sometimes people will ask me about my decade plus as president of the college uh, mm -hmm. of HUC. Boy, I'm giving a lot of confessions here today. <laughs> I can almost not All think. Our listeners, are, our listeners are, be are the beneficiaries. All I really think about are things that I wanted to do that I did not accomplish. I mm. find that the positive deeds I performed as president mm. are, are like a tiny grain of sand mm. in an mm. ocean mm -hmm. of unfulfilled desires, expectations, mm -hmm. aspirations, goals that I had sent for myself. And I wonder what that is about a human being and about myself mm. that causes some of us to be that way. So if I were to plug that back into what you just mentioned about yourself and about Mike Friedman and the story of his slow brew chuva, so is, is it possible that 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 second atom in us, the more the one that's able to sit back and reflect is the one that allows us to kind of seep into a different level of self-awareness and awareness of our place in the world that allows that process of chuva to kind of come to fruition over time? The answer is yes. I mean, I think so. Uh, it allows in some ways a better part of yourself to emerge. Uh, mm. But it's not easy. And I think it's particularly difficult when you're still at a stage in your life. And this is part of what's remarkable about Mike. He didn't have to wait to be 70 years old mm. to come to that realization. But I have found that post-retirement, I'm able to reflect much more on things in my life and both acknowledge where the Yatzer that pushed me in certain ways uh, might not have allowed the best me in other ways to come out. It's true that Mike, throughout the podcast, or well, throughout his life, right, um, uh, carried that sense of remorse. But at least in terms of how Jared Marcel tells the story, um, or Ian tells the story, he goes through a divorce. And that ends up being, uh, he hits a real low point in his life. And it's right after that, that he, after the first time that he almost apologizes to Ian, but doesn't, um, that's the point at which he wants to make it right. It did take the divorce and this incident, as you describe it, to bring this part out in Mike. But the other part of it is, how does one get to the point where one can forgive oneself? In other words, that incident and that event, that disappointment in his life brought out this movement in him towards Chuva. This process begins. But the other issue I often think with all of us as human beings, what allows you to fully forgive yourself? I know there's the story that once... Uh, Levi Yitzchak of Berdichev is crying before the holidays and uh, his Talmudim come up to him and say, Rebbe, what's, what's bothering you? And he talks about uh, various sins and people say, but we all forgive you for, you know, whatever it was that 
you did. And he said, yes, but can I forgive myself? Mm-hmm. I mean, the word, you know, of tshuva itself, if you think about lashuv, to right. return, it, it involves just such a lengthy process. Mm-hmm. Uh, and clearly there are events that occur uh, for all of us in our lives, but undoubtedly events that occur to us in life cause us to reflect in all sorts of ways and lead us in directions that are just radically different than the ones we had moved in. They help to put us on a better derech, but they percolate. They don't happen uh, right. they just don't happen in a single, single second. You mentioned before, and, and I want to um, invite you to share a little bit more um, in terms of Jewish framing about about Ian's role here, about what it is to be on the forgiving side of things and to be an aider and a better to that slow process of tshuva. Well, the text uh, that came to mind here was from Maimonides' Mishnah Torah, mm-hmm. when it talks about uh, the person who's been wronged. And mm-hmm. then the issue is, how you are supposed to grant forgiveness when the person comes to you three times. And I thought how difficult this had to be for Ian. In other words, hmm. what was amazing, he we've discussed already the rage he felt right. at being wronged in the way that he was, and he was genuinely wrong. How is it when someone comes and they are genuinely contrite How do you come to forgive them? I mean, I was proud of Ian that he was able to provide this forgiveness and follow the Rambam's dictum, but simultaneously um, admired him very, very greatly because I think how difficult it is sometimes for us, again, even when we know that it's the right thing to do, our own Yetzirah often allows us to be forgiving. But I also look at the world we live in, Mm -hmm. and I see how anxious so many people are to be able to spot the mistake that someone makes and to not offer any kind of forgiveness, even when there's genuine tshuva. So the person who I have immense admiration for in this story is Ian, because Ian overcame what had to be a powerful instinct to say, no, I won't forgive you. But in fact, it seems he does so. I actually had tears in my eyes at, um, you know, when I heard it for the umpteenth time, the moment when um, Ian describes Mike's coming and going through, as you mentioned, those stage after stage, um, you know, of trying to right the wrong. And Ian says at that moment, he says, you know, my God, when do we ever get in life this moment um, where there's this kind of perfect correction of a wrong that's been done? And then he immediately, and this is what I found so moving, is that as the person wronged, and this is, I I think, what you're respecting, um, is that as the person who's been wronged, he really doesn't hold, even though he you know, mentioned how he's still carrying this hurt for years and years and years, when Mike comes and writes it, what he's overwhelmed with is a sense of the kind of the harmony, the, 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 the fact that something has been corrected in this world. Uh, and then, and this is really, I mean, just, I found so moving, the, 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 what his immediately elides to is, and when have I done that? Mike's tshuva 
then kind of immediately has not just the, the, the moment of truth and powerful impact that Ian is able to accept it, but also that it kind of is, elicits in Ian a reflectiveness yes. and a desire and an aspiration to do that kind of good as well. If anything, that just represented to me what an unusual person Ian genuinely, uh, Ian genuinely was. But it also reflects once more the whole complexity of who we are as human beings and just made the story that much more human and I thought that much more uh, powerful. I think of how... You know, the very famous Midrash where it says the Torah begins with acts of loving kindness that God clothes the naked, just mm-hmm. as God clothed Adam and Eve, you should mm-hmm. clothe Adam and Eve. And mm-hmm. then at the end of the Torah, Vayiboro Tobagai, that he buries Moses, God, mm-hmm. uh, in the valley. Uh, and just as the Torah and God begin with and end with acts of love and kindness uh, in Genesis and Deuteronomy, so we too should behave uh, mm. in that kind of way. And I think this story kind of involves that mm, type beautiful. of thing, at least the endings beautiful. are this way. And the other text, as you know, that I thought about uh, were the seventh chapter of the Mishnah Torah, Hilchot Shuvah, because those passages speak directly to. Um, what it was that Mike did. But what I like there in those texts, it says basically, don't think you have to be a tzaddik in order to engage in tshuva. The fact is, what Mike can't ever do is replay that deed. That deed stands forever. The fact is, he did do a wrong. Uh, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that cannot be repaired. He can give him the shirt. Right. He can have the agency erase his name. Right. And put uh, Ian's name in. But the actual moment and the excitement that surrounded it, I know you come from Houston, and I don't know if I should bring this up. Oh, please do. What? Please do. I know where you're going. Well, regardless of how the Astros respond, to stealing the signals, et cetera. And even if the title were to be stripped from them, I have to confess, I don't know if they did or did not strip the title. They did not, but they probably should have. But But the reality is, honestly, it just doesn't matter. The fact is in 2017, when the World Series and the AL Championship Series took place and my Yankees lost to the Astros. I apologize. It would have happened otherwise. You can see I don't hold a grudge at all. (laughs) Uh, Don't worry. Your Yankees are going to take the series this year. Well, the reality is that moment can never be recaptured. Having said that, the world does remain broken, but there is a tikkun that takes place so that when the act of tshuva is genuinely done, Ian can accept it and Michael, Mike can perform it. And that's not a small thing. You know, the the default, the normal way of thinking is, well, I can never, as you said, I can never be a tzaddik. Like it's better to be a tzaddik, someone who's a truly righteous person who never sins than to be someone who sins and, and then does tshuva. 
and the Rambam quotes the Talmud there that says, yeah, actually, Gadol, yeah. yeah, actually, that's not true, you know, because there's something, you know, that, that a Baal Tshuva has a kind of certain standing that even a total tzaddik, righteous person does not. And I think if I were to connect it back to the story of Mike and Ian, what I would say is there's a kind of wholeness to this story. Um, which is almost more beautiful, uh, and maybe maybe I should take away the word all make uh, take away the word almost. That's more beautiful than if it hadn't happened at all. There's a kind of to to have someone go through this process and say, "I've learned something. I've learned what it is to make a mistake, and I've discovered a part of myself that I've now let it come out, and I've now fixed it, as opposed to not ever letting it out." There's a kind of wholeness there and there's a repair, which is sui generis, which, which I think, you know, kind of we long for. And there is a way, I think, at that moment when Ian, uh, you know, has experienced Mike's full tshuva and says, when have I ever done that myself? You know, where, where really what he is, and maybe the w- way to rephrase it is to say, Mike's tshuva has brought him to a place where he says, how can I be like that too? Yes. Uh, and there's a wholeness there that, that, that I would even say that world is more complete than Ian's and, and Mike's world would have been had that never occurred. How do we meet the challenge of each moment hmm. when it comes before us so that when that opportunity does arise, um, we will be able to act uh, hmm. when that occasion comes and not miss that opportunity. That is one of the great challenges that all of us confront. This story is a great one for the holidays. Yeah, it really is. Rabbi Professor David Ellison, thank you so much for being here. It was really, really a pleasure to hear and learn from you. Uh, thank you Always very much. Always wonderful to be with you, Leon. Wish you all the best. Thank you very much. Padrash is a project of Kolot, a fantastic organization in Israel where I'm privileged to direct the Beit Midrash. Before we continue on to Ariel Kaminer, guest of our Hypertech segment, we'll break briefly in order to meet Kolot alumna Ziv Lidor, who runs the Street Law Legal Clinic at the Law School of the Interdisciplinary Center of Herzliya. We chatted so that I could learn about her and how learning at Kolot has impacted her. mother to two daughters, Roten and Yuval, and married to Jonathan, currently living in Tel Aviv, though I think I will always uh, describe myself as a kibbutznikit from WIM. I'm uh, the head of the street law program, which is a legal clinic in the Faculty of Law and IDC. It was uh, seven years ago, in 2013. I um, was part of the beta program. And I don't remember exactly the definition. I think it was aimed at young social leaders or something like that. But uh, I can say that it was a very diverse group. It was a very dialogical learning. And I still remember a lot of different conversations that we had. One of them uh, actually is connected to your uh, podrash, Betshuva. And I think it still still goes with me uh, seven or even more years later. 
it has an impact in very different uh, ways. It can be also uh, in the way I teach my students in the IDC that they have to learn in Hebrutot. They learn in pairs, kind of as you do in a Beit Midrash rather than by themselves in the way that you do in a library. Exactly. Uh, it enables them to think, uh, to see another perspective. Another influence of uh, Kolot is a course where students from the IDC learn together with prisoners from Asiao and, and the Ayalon prison. And they learn an academic course uh, regarding social uh, rights. Wow. And they get academic credit. I think two of the, the main pillars of the, of the course is one, you could say, like the slogan of Kolot, maybe, Talmud Shemevili Demaste. Okay, lear, lear, learning that, that actualizes itself in action. That's one pillar. And the other one is, is learning together. And I think the inspiration for this uh, pillar was, I don't think, I know, was the, the story of Resh Lakish and Rabbi Yochanan. You really can feel from the story how the perspective of someone that was a criminal can be so much deeper and with a lot more wisdom sometimes than someone that is uh, supposedly uh, more educated. I think it was proved itself as, as pure magic what, what happened there. And I think that I can thank a lot to Polot for uh, the inspiration for that. I think probably your students, which I guess include the prisoners, uh, can also... Uh, thank you for having been inspired in that way. Zivli Gol, thank you very, very much for being with us. Thanks. Like every episode of Padrash, learning at Kolot pulses between the text as discussed in the Beit Midrash and the broken reality that surrounds us, beckoning us to hear voices of wisdom that can point the way to a better world. To learn more about Kolot, visit www.kolot.info. And now, back to our episode. So I want to welcome to Padrash, Ariel Kaminer. Ariel uh, and I last saw each other some undisclosed number of years ago in our senior year, at, uh, or as we were graduating or finishing, I guess I should say, uh, our time at Princeton. And Ariel is now the head of investigative journalism at uh, BuzzFeed. And more than we've had a lot of interaction uh, directly with each other, it's, it's been through uh, third-party friends, I guess we could say. And so it was through our mutual friend, Dave Mills. Um, Hi, Dave. Hi, Dave, who's a radio personality of himself. Uh, he's, you know, my first friend who had a radio persona. Um, so uh, it, was, it was through him that I heard of um, your very, very, I think, interesting and compelling uh, story. So I'd like for you to share with our listeners, if you would, Ariel, what I'm calling the 25-year senior thesis story. But I'll, I'll, <laughs> that's, that's the, uh, but I'll, I'll, let you, uh, I'll let you tell it the way you want to tell it. Well, I mean, it begins at the college that you and I attended, which has a, a, a strict requirement for graduation, which is that all seniors have to pursue some significant, for their level, whatever that means, significant independent academic research. Mm -hmm. And I was a literature major, which meant you're supposed to write like a hundred-ish word page long, uh, you know, academic research paper. 
And mm-hmm. you're supposed to basically do it on your own. You have some uh, advice, you know, an academic advisor, but it's really this one's on you. And I think that it's a way to measure whether somebody has matured to the level that they can take on, you know, those responsibilities by themselves. I let, let me just let me just, I, let me just let me just let me let me just interrupt Ariel for a second and ask because I had an advisor um, and I loved him dearly and we're still friends to this day, Professor Jeff Stout of the Religion Department, who recently retired. But everyone who knew that I took him as my advisor said, "Oh, you're crazy," because he was known as being very, very strict. And he set me a timetable the first time we met. From what you're saying, I understand that your advisor did not work that way. Yeah, it's just he had a very different approach. Uh, he's lovely and supportive person and a brilliant scholar in his own right, but he really left the independent work to be independent. And as I said, it's supposed to be a measure of your, you know, whether the extent to which you have matured over the course of your four years. And what I found was that I had not really very much. And I really was not ready. <laughs> well, not, to take, not in that way. I had was not ready to take on that responsibility for myself. So by the time the year ended, not only had I not finished my senior thesis, truth be told, I really hadn't started it. And uh, I was able to participate in the graduation ceremony, but I didn't get a diploma. And that felt like a fun day. And then I, so I brought all these books with me off. My friends and I went off for the summer to live in Colorado. I brought the books with me. The end of the summer, the tape was still on the, on the box. I really hadn't opened it once. And then I moved to New York and I got a cool job um, working at the Village Voice and it just never, um, it never seemed like an urgent or necessary thing to do. You know, in journalism, I think people are a lot more interested in what, you know, what you produce than what your credentials are. I always had this idea that maybe I'd get around to it someday, but the truth is that the longer things went on, the less likely that was. And the further removed I was from that kind of academic discourse, really, Mm -hmm. I was trying to unlearn how to write like that. Mm. And it just became less and less probable. But at the same time, I made a friend in my neighborhood who was a graduate student who really, in just like a one in a zillion coincidence, went on to be, to, he became a professor in various parts of the country, but eventually where he settled down 20 years later was at, of all places, my alma mater. (laughs) And he had been encouraging me along the way, you know, would you like some help getting this thesis off the ground, you know, here, I'll suggest this or that, you could do this or that. And I never, I just kind of blew it off. It never seemed that important to me. And it also, then once I started having kids and being a fully employed parent, I just definitely didn't have the time. And Mm -hmm. I always, you know, thanks, but no thanks. But then something unexpected happened, which was I had been working at the New York Times for 15 years. Mm And they had a round of layoffs. As mm-hmm. Actually, they had many rounds of layoffs back in those days, many. Uh-huh. Um, and I was laid off. Mm-hmm. And so suddenly I didn't have a job. But what I did have was a severance package, whatever right. it was. They were going right. to continue to pay me for quite a while. And so I had the luxury, the considerable luxury of not having to just take the first job that mm-hmm. came along. I, mm-hmm. I was able to look and, you know, find the, the right job. Mm-hmm. And in the interim, I just decided, well, I'm never going to have a chance like this again. I might be between jobs again, but I won't have, it won't, that time won't be paid for. I right. better make the most of this, mm-hmm. you know, one time only pocket of air. So I wrote up a list of all the things that I never have time to do otherwise. And I uh-huh. attended to them. 
I just didn't want to waste this, this one chance. And so I actually, I set myself, you know, I set rules for myself to make sure that I maximize that time. Like hmm. I, like what kind of rules? Yeah. Like I wasn't in the house during the day, hmm. you know, no social media at all during the day, no, like wow. whatever TV during the day, you know, anything like hmm. that. Like I was, you know, I was really trying to make the most of that time. Hmm. And I called up that friend and I said, okay, let's do it. Wow. And I was very fortunate. He, um, kind of took me in hand and we uh-huh. had lunch with the dean. It wasn't the same dean when we were there, was it? It wasn't the same dean. <laughs> okay. But that experience would have been terrifying to me. And I, I just I, to picture being in conversation with a dean about unfinished academic <laughs> responsibilities. You know, when right. you're 19 or something, you're like, your lower lip is trembling. Right, you right. to cry, but when you're right. middle-aged, right. you're professional. Yeah. So it was a very friendly and more sort of uh, hmm. collegial feeling encounter. And she said, let's get you graduated. Hmm. And so my friend and I made the suggestion, what if instead of writing a hundred page academic research paper, I just put together the research and writing that I did in articles that appeared on the front page of the New York times. Hmm. It was a very bold, really bold and, and a somewhat ridiculous suggestion. And she I would said, say, br- sure. I would say brilliant, but you know, she you said, can sure. Be- sounds great. Talk to your advisor, who was still there by chance. He was still there. And he was as, um, you know, as sort of like, sure, why not about the whole thing the second time around, as he had been the first. So the department required me to do some original writing, but it was, it really was a, a very small hurdle to jump over. And I collected them together and I handed them off. Beautiful. Yeah. I got to graduate for real this time with uh-huh. my two daughters sitting on my lap as wow. parents in the audience looked on beaming, I think maybe possibly thinking that I had toughed it out in the dorms, you know, for all <laughs> those right. tiny babies. Right. While you are, yes, waking up at night and, you know, taking them back and forth to daycare and then waking up at night to yeah. eke out another sentence in your senior thesis. Yeah. Was there some moment or some event that caused you to think, oh my gosh, I need to use this time in order to do things that otherwise I would not do? Before it happened, I would have thought that getting laid off was like a kind of specific noble, specific uh, event with very knowable consequences. You know, the consequences that then you don't have a job. Mm-hmm. But actually mine happened to play out in a very different way. I had a very anomalous experience of losing a job because because of the particular circumstances i actually found it what should legitimately have been very scary i actually found very um cheering i guess hmm. the day that i was late no i guess my last day of work i happened to have a good story on the front page of the new york times that got a, some a bunch of attention and so when people wrote articles about the layoffs at the New York Times, one publication wrote, a, I remember, wrote a big story and they picked me. There were a lot of people that were laid off, but because of the coincidence that I had a story on the front page, they sort of led the story with me and they said, oh, look, at you know. Even even Ariel Kamerner was. Yeah, something like that. And, <laughs> and so I, as a result, I got a lot of attention Mm-hmm. that I, not only I wouldn't have gotten without those articles, but I never really got before. <laughs> and I wasn't looking for it to happen, obviously. Mm-hmm. But like, you know, maybe this is a good thing. Hmm. And I mean, my 
you know, husband had a different take on it. You know, we thought, oh no, this is terrible. What can we do? Can this fateful decision be reversed? And I said, like, forget about it. It's great. Mm. It's a big mm. wide world. And maybe wow. that, you know, maybe that really was self-deluding. But that, I mean, that that is at least how I experienced it. We all know somewhere in our heads that events happen and they have consequences and the amount of control that we have is pretty limited. I mean, I think we're all experiencing that at a global, heightened global sense right now. But I think that at least for me as a listener um, and as a friend, what your story offers is a kind of willingness to look at an event um, and say, okay, let me, let, let me now do an assessment of um, what opportunities present themselves, um, not knowing what's waiting around the corner. And so in that sense, I think that your decision to say, okay, I'm going to take this year and define it as a time of transition in which I recalibrate. I think that that's, that required both a wonderful awareness uh, of the opportunity in real time uh, and and also willingness to um, you know a kind of inner fortitude, which, which I think is just tremendously admirable. When I said that that the experience permanently recalibrated my understanding of sort of risk and of the secondary effects of change, mm-hmm. um, I mean that only in the literal sense. It did not make me feel like oh now I know that everything will always work out perfectly. Right. For yeah. the best. It didn't. Yeah. But what it did make me think is you really can't tell what the effects of change are going to be. You can't predict the second. You can only know what's happening at that moment and you know where things take you from there, you can't know. And they might get a lot worse and they might get a lot better and don't but just don't assume that they're gonna get a lot worse. In that sense, the the process for me as a listener is way more significant than the fact that uh, you know, you actually had that leather bound uh certificate and the binding of the book with a black binding and the gold letters on the shelf. But I'm glad you got those too. Thanks a lot. <laughs> Ariel Kavanagh, thank you very, very much for being here on Padra. Thanks, Leon. Here's something crazy, absolutely astounding, that makes it worth having listened to this entire episode. Rabbi Professor David Ellenson, one of the great Judaic scholars of our generation, who's held positions of prominence in the Jewish and academic worlds, a father, spouse, grandfather, and honestly, one of the most exquisite human beings for whom I've had the privilege to learn Torah. He shared that the single greatest disappointment of his life is that he got cut from the basketball team some 57 years ago in 11th grade. It's not just that he's still carrying that moment. It absolutely sears. He's embarrassed by that fact, just as Ian Dilly is embarrassed by how long his pain lingered from the episode with Mike Friedman. Now here's what I want to suggest. If pain can percolate so long over time, so too can tshuva. Sometimes we need time, and lots of it, to bring the process of tshuva to its tipping point. Sometimes time itself is enough to bring fruition. But more often than not, it's time plus something else. Something else that will allow, to go back to the distinction from Joseph Soloveitchik that Rabbi Ellenson cited, the more reflective side of us to emerge and to perform its powerful, erosive work on the part of us that races, and races hard, to win. Sometimes that something else is retirement, 
a shifting of modes and a change of pace that grants dominance to that reflective self. Other times, it's having hit rock bottom like Mike Friedman, or having been laid off like Ariel Kaminer. But I will say, Ariel's protestations notwithstanding, being blessed with a great severance package and stars that align is not enough. We have to have the courage and ability to recognize this moment for the full complexity of what it is, mixed, blessing and curse, good and bad. Which leads us back to Isaiah, and back to us, composites of good and bad. It's surely no coincidence that both Rabbi Ellenson and Rabbi Joel Levy, in their explorations of slow Tshuva, asked how we can be forgiving of ourselves. They all come together, I would suggest. Our ability to see the complex possibilities of this moment and the composite nature of the person we hurt and of ourselves. For what is slow bruchuva if not our decision to cast our intentional glance not only at our sins, but also at our good deeds, which are, to cite Rabbi Tzvi Hirsch Kalisher, abundant like the deep red seeds of a pomegranate, that captivating symbol of Rosh Hashanah, seeds whose elusive translucent radiance hints at something beyond. Padrash is a project of Kolot. I'm Leon Wienerdow, creator and host. My sincere thanks go to this episode's guests, Rabbi Professor David Ellenson and Ariel Kaminer, to our producer, Noam Zuckerman, to David Goodman, our sound editor, to Michael Goelsheimer for the original music, to our fantabulous intern, Hannah Taylor, and of course to my chevruta, Rabbi Joel Levy, for the learning, the friendship, and the willingness to call the Pope out on his hand slap. Please visit our website, www.podrash.org, where you'll find links to the original episode of This American Life and to Joel's and my extended chevruta, along with the texts that we referenced. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Tell your friends, tweet, like our page on Facebook, and please give us a five-star rating. It really helps. Next Thursday, we'll be busy preparing for Rosh Hashanah, so we'll release our final episode of this first season in two weeks' time, smack during the Aseret Yemei Tshuvah, the ten days of repentance. Keep your ears peeled for episode five, Always Doing Time, which will feature Rabbi Diane Kohler S's of Ramamu and my own brother, David Dow, professor of law at the University of Houston and founding director of the Texas Innocence Network, which defends people on death row. My warmest wishes for a Shana Tova, a good, healthy new year. <laughs>